the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond, but at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Please do not leave the podcast until the ride has come to a complete stop. I'm not going to do that voice the whole time, uh, but I thought it was cool to start that way. My name is Ben. Bleep, bleep, bloop, bloop, blop. My name is Noel. Uh, We're talking about robots today. Robots. Mm -hmm. And we're uh, we're doing it with the uh, (laughs) uh, the digital spiritual guidance of our super producer, Casey Pegram. Now, longtime listeners to both this show and our other show stuff, they don't want you to know. You probably know that a lot of people have been worried for a, a while now about the idea that increased automation and increasingly sophisticated robots and artificial intelligence programs will one day drive the organic meat bag of humanity out of the employment market. Uh, it's something that we've we've talked about extensively, and we're not going to be too conspiratorial today, uh, but we are here to tell you that this fear of the rise of robots dates back much, much further than many folks might imagine. Noel, what do you think of when you just, when you hear the word robot? Um, you know, I think of, I, I tend to conjure the image of like the classic robot, uh, the sort of Tin Man-esque model of, of the robot. Uh, you know, uh, a metal being, sort of a, um, a humanoid type thing um, that has sort of herky-jerky movements, possibly some sort of antenna, um, an automaton, if you will. Mm-hmm. Light bulb eyes, maybe. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, that kind of retro-futuristic 1950s-era robot, uh, maybe the maid from the Jetsons, or uh, maybe the uh, the automaton in the, the fantastic film Metropolis. It, it's weird because for most of us listening to the show now, most of us humans at least, uh, the word robot or the concept has been around all of our lives. But the word robot is fairly recent in this language of ours. It comes from a Czech author, a novelist and playwright named Karol Čapek. He was born in 1880, passed away in 1938. In 1920, he wrote a play called R.U.R., Rossum's Universal Robots, and this is where we get the phrase robot from. The etymology is pretty interesting and not super optimistic. 
No, it 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 came from you know the period in history where serfdom was a thing, and this idea of like lords and, and serfs, and you know having a manor and having like the lower class essentially being indentured servants that would you know uh, work for the right to subsist on the the manor on the land of like the upper class uh, by you know doing kind of lower class peasant type work, the kinds of things that the upper crust would never you know deign to do. Um, the idea that you are sort of paying your way by doing this forced labor. And it kind of created this construct in the zeitgeist um, that you can see in things like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or the legend of the Gollum, which was a Yiddish Czech kind of folklore thing, this notion of this sort of man-made, uh, you know, creature that would do the bidding of its master. And R.U.R. Um, really crystallizes that and becomes like a very early science fiction work in that it uh, describes this creature as a worker who, quote, lacks nothing but a soul. Um, and it would, you know, perform tasks. It was, it was meant to be, you know, mass produced to do the bidding of man. And uh, Kopek initially called these creatures labori, um, and that was, of course, the Latin root for the word labor. But he wanted something that was a little sexier. He thought he sounded too, quote, bookish. And his brother, Yosef, came up with the word roboti, um, and the English, of course, is robots. And, you know, surprise, surprise, in, in the, uh, the twist of the century that now we see as just like almost cliche and like such a trope, the automatons in the play uh, ultimately revolt against their human masters, um, you know, causing a genocide of sorts, uh, the uprising of the robots. And that it, it was meant to be a political kind of work. It was describing the plight of these lower class people, these, these indentured servants, and the idea they're going to be able to revolt. Uh, and in fact, if I'm not mistaken, Ben, Kapek uh, was also kind of describing the rise of Nazism. And he was persona non grata to the Gestapo and Hitler himself. And actually ended up like on their list of, you know, kill on sight. He mm -hmm. had a death warrant out on him. Um, but I guess, unfortunately for Hitler, uh, he didn't have the pleasure of carrying out that death warrant because in 1938, uh, Kopech died of the flu at the, at the age of 48. Which is terribly young. Also, Kopech uh, described R.U.R. routinely as his least favorite work, even though it is by far his most well-known today. And audiences disagree with Chopek. It's probably uh, his most popular work for audiences. People love the play across Europe and the U.S. It should go without saying that shortly thereafter, robots became the number one love of many science fiction authors. I mean, just consider everything Isaac Asimov did with the three laws of robotics, which later find themselves in a non-fictional work uh, by roboticists and by people who are working in the field of AI. And with each new story about robots, they become a little bit closer to human. At least that's that's the trend. Uh, and and since, since this origin point of the term robot, which, as you mentioned, it explores the kind of the creation myth that we see also in Frankenstein or in the idea of the golem, that man could make something the way that God made man— with this, there comes this fear. Are we going too far as a species? Have we crossed some sort of metaphysical line or some sort of line of divinity? People have been terrified that robots will take all of the jobs on the planet for more than two centuries— Way back in 1921, New York Times had a book review called Will Machines Devour Man? And <laughs> you can see the illustration here. Just look it up online. Uh, it's accompanied by this picture of a person being fed into a sausage grinder. And then there are other things, like there was a drawing called Vision of the Machine Age that showed thousands of people cowering under these gigantic mechanical cogs and gears, like worker ants, ghosts in a machine of their own design. 
So we often have this implicit assumption that robots are going to be kind of humanoid, right? That they're going to have a torso with a head, two arms, two legs, same number of limbs as a human. Uh, However, nowadays, many real robots we see kind of have that schematic from the, the waist up. The first ever real robot, real humanoid robot, was built by a guy named Ron Wensley in 1927. Uh, The robot was named Herbert Televox. So shout out to you, Herbert. Uh, Herbert could do the following things. Herbert could lift the receiver to get a telephone call and operate switches. Mm -hmm. Which was a big deal because that was a profession, you know, switchboard operator. Um, And I could see how this would would seemingly uh, put a lot of those people in a state of anxiety where it's like, well, what what am I going to do if the robot swoops in? Because that was a specialized kind of training that went into that type of job to be able to operate the switchboards. And if all of a sudden you're not needed anymore, what do you do then? Uh, This robot couldn't speak or communicate really. It was very task driven. Um, it eventually was updated where it could say two simple sentences uh, on, on the phone, like, you know, which again, we're, we're there. We don't have switchboard operators anymore and all that stuff is automated. And it's definitely not like an, a, a humanoid robot in a room with limbs and a voice, but it's all like in the cloud or it's in computer servers. So, uh, the most important feature of, of uh, Herbert Televox was its ability to listen um, because it had a very sensitive microphone that was placed close to the telephone receiver, uh, and then it could then respond based on these voice commands. The, the idea of voice commands seems like a really modern thing, but it wasn't. Uh, it really was like in the earliest days of this type of computing and this type of robotics. Uh, it would respond to sound and pitch, and these would then communicate, this information would communicate to uh, the the machine and and uh, give it in a corresponding set of instructions that it could then act out whatever you know task was was asked of it. Uh, very simple, obviously, very rudimentary, um, based on the appliance that it was using. Yeah, and this was just the starting point for Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company. They went on to create a thing they called Electro, the Moto Man, in 1937. And yes, that's Electro with a K. A lot of people will tell you that's the first real humanoid robot. Electro was created by Joseph Barnett, made from aluminum and steel, and capable of performing 26 different things they called routines. Waking up, talking, counting, and of course, smoking because it was the 1930s <laughs> and uh that's right there, there's actually a, a clip we could play really quickly from a demonstration of electro the moto man uh, i believe it was at the uh, 1937 world's fair all right now electro i know you enjoy these and i'm really going to try to give you a nice pleasure out of these so here you are you got that now hold on to it you may now smoke this cigarette go on oh yes electro you do need a light too don't you all right here you are and folks he's only two years old too just learning and that clip came from a youtube video posted on odd history uh called electro the smoking robot and i highly recommend checking out the whole thing because it shows the schematic of like what the design of this thing was and it's you know very rudimentary a lot of gears um it actually had a photoelectric tube to detect different colors that would allow it to respond um and it was full of like you know gears and drive shafts and like things that look like bicycle chains and then a bellows that would operate the the mouth so that it could smoke which is clearly a bit of a gimmick can't quite see what the function of that is outside of look it's almost like a real person uh but it's a lot it's very clunky very very heavy and not particularly elegant uh in terms of you know function but I'd made a big splash, I imagine. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And is a the, the boy's a beast. He's like seven, he's seven feet tall. Uh, this also gives us an opportunity to explore one of my favorite parts of science fiction as a genre, which is that science fiction is really a creative endeavor that functions in step with science fact. It would be naive 
to say that these two robots were not in some way inspired by the fiction going on at the time. One of the big ones, we mentioned it at the top of the show, Metropolis. It's an amazing film. It's one of my favorites, actually. Uh, in 1927, this becomes the first movie to have what's called Maschinenmensch, or Machine Men. Uh, and this is a, well, we can't call her a female robot, but a gynoid or a female-shaped robot. This is like, even if you haven't seen Metropolis, I guarantee you, you know the look of this robot. The entire film is silent. It's black and white. It's directed by the legendary Fritz Lang. Get this, it's in 2026, and uh, Metropolis, so it's, it's coming out in real life six years from now. And Metropolis is about a massive city with the same name that is based on the brutal labor conditions of the underclass. Sounds familiar. Right. And everybody in Metropolis, the vast majority, they live a slave-like existence to sustain the lives of a privileged minority. And their children that are cared for and inspired by Maria, who is the heroine of the show, she brings these kids to a forbidden garden of the ruling class and eventually, spoiler, uh, her just goodness overwhelms the son of Metropolis's ruler. He falls in love with her, star-crossed lovers, yada, 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 and then he joins up with the proletariat. Um, there's this famous image of Maria as a robot, and it's based on the robot created in the laboratory of the city's mad scientist to look like the dead wife of the guy who rules Metropolis. It, I, I don't want to totally spoil the ending, but that that clearly inspires this real-life creation of things like Electro, the Moto Man. I love they call him Moto Man. Oh, but I mean, gosh, how prescient was that R.U.R. play by Chopek? You know, I mean, every this is really the same story. It's about uh, a society where these automatons are created um, to, you know, do the work of, of the privileged um, upper class and then ultimately revolt or there's like an uprising of the proletariat, right, which is represented by these uh, robots. So... There's a twist. We're talking about a lot of things. We're talking about literature. We're talking about science fiction tropes, all of this kind of coming together and coalescing into something that we now just think of as like so ubiquitous in terms of the Terminator or the Matrix or so many of these ideas of AI um, and androids that like, you know, uh, Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which became the incredibly influential film Blade Runner that created the whole kind of cyberpunk aesthetic. But it was another movie not science fiction in the least that mm -hmm. really pushed a lot of this stuff forward, not only in terms of the ability to create amazing cinema, but in terms of this whole argument of like, are the robots going to steal our jobs? Because it was a film called The Jazz Singer starring Al Jolson um, that was released on October 6th of 1927 by Warner Brothers that was the first talkie. You know, it was the first one that used what's called synchronized sound. Uh, it had, it was very novelty at the time, and a lot of folks thought that it was going to be something like 3D or smell-o-vision that would be like a little novelty that would then go away because surely, you know, the, the masses weren't ready for this or not even weren't ready for this, but it was just too out there, right? And it didn't do that at all. In fact, it created this revolution in film that required a lot of technological advancement, right? So if you're doing silent films, Cameras are very, very loud, and you didn't have to soundproof the cameras. You didn't have to, um, you know, encase them in these much larger, bulkier, uh, you know, housings, I guess. So early silent films had more nimble cameras, comparatively, that could, like, do much more poetic or balletic even, like, moves, right? And that was a big part of the aesthetic of, of early silent film. Um, but when people just were clamoring for the sound sync the technology had to go along with it because you can't have the cameras rattling away if you're recording dialogue, right? Mm-hmm, that's right. 
tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh boy, have I ever been. (laughs) Well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. And for the record, uh, there were tons of naysayers for talkies. They said, this is a fad. People aren't going to want to hear actors talk. And history would prove that to be incorrect. Uh, the jazz singer is a harbinger, an omen of things to come. And after it was released in 1927, musicians panicked because at the time, uh, during the silent film era, it was normal to go to a movie theater and watch the film with live musical accompaniment, which is something really cool. I don't know, ridiculous historians, I don't know if you live in a, in a city or community where this is possible, but here in the fair metropolis of Atlanta, we have a, we have a great classical community, and every so often you can watch films with a live score by the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. And I, I I highly recommend it, and and I'm somewhat envious of um, of the moviegoers of the past. Well, I don't know when was the last time either of us went to a movie theater as well. Uh, but here, here's why they're worried: the musicians are worried because synchronized sound means that their livelihood may become unnecessary or even old-fashioned. So in 1930, just three years after the jazz singer, the American Federation of Musicians forms a new group. It's called the Music Defense League. I would love to see this as a superhero film. They launch this crazy ad campaign to fight off the advance of what they see as the, the menace of recorded sound. And they make a, they spent like over $500,000 in 1930s money. Jeez Louise. Means it's time for the inflation calculator. Oh, I think it is. This is we've got to do that one. Bleep, blop, bloop, bleep, bleep, bloop, blop, bloop, bleep, bloop, blop, bloop. Calculator, calculator, calculator. Bloop. And the results are in. 
Five hundred thousand dollars in nineteen thirty is equal to seven point seven nine million dollars in twenty twenty. And this was just running ads in newspapers and like cartoons, for example. A lot of these ads would be there's a there's a there's a bunch of really good ones, but mm-hmm. <laughs> there's there's one. Uh, let me see if I can describe this. There's a wheel like you'd use to steer a ship, um, and on each on one side of it is sort of like a, a Greek god looking figure holding a harp and reaching out and guiding the wheel while on the other side, a uh, menacing looking robot, you know, like that robot that we described, the classic robot with the, you know, the full crummy kind of jaw and the boxy shape with a tag connected to it saying canned music in theaters is lunging across the wheel and also grabbing the other side of the wheel to try to re-steer the ship in clearly a, a bad direction. And the, uh, the wheel is labeled musical culture. Oof. Yeah, and this was framed as a call to arms for musicians and fans of music. It was presented as protecting art, with a capital A, from debasement or indeed perversion. And there was another ad that said musicians were being put out of work because Hollywood wanted only needed a few hundred musicians in recording studios to do music for all films. And they even put little scare quotes around the word music, Mm -hmm. saying that, you know, if it's recorded, could it even count as music? It's a a disingenuous argument, but it's coming from a real and valid fear. And the president of the American Federation of Musicians in 1931 uh, had an interview with Modern Mechanics, uh, who, where he crystallized this view. His name's Joseph N. Weber. And he said, you know, everything, and he, he was pressing it too, by the way. He was pretty right. He said, the time is coming fast when the only living thing around a motion picture house will be the person who sells you your ticket. Everything else will be mechanical. Uh, and then he has a line where he says, look, we're not against scientific development, but it can't come at the expense of art. We're not opposed to mechanical music, except when it is used for artistic debasement. I think this is a disingenuous argument, Ben, because the implication, if you if you want to apply this to music, shouldn't you also apply it to acting? Like, it, 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 it seems to me that the same argument could be like, well, it's reproduced mechanically, so it's not actually acting unless you're seeing human beings do it in real hmm. time. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, the the nature of cinema in itself would, I think, be called into question by this kind of logic. You know, it says canned drama, canned music, canned vaudeville. We think the public will tire of mechanical music. will want the real thing. I just think like they're, they're sort of picking and choosing uh, yeah. and, and clearly have an agenda here. I do think it's really funny, Ben, that it says the time is coming fast and the only living thing around a motion picture house will be the person who sells you the ticket. Would mm. love to see their thoughts around those, you know, little touch screens that they have at all the movie theaters now and how so few even still have box office people. Yeah, yeah. And they, they put a uh, sexual panic in there too, as a as a sort of thread in the conversation, they had uh, going back to that Syracuse Herald issue from November third, nineteen thirty. There was a robot shown ineffectively trying to soothe a baby, and there would be other ads like the one from Centralia Daily Chronicle in Washington on August twenty fourth, nineteen thirty one, and this one. This one is definitely like a moral panic thing. Uh, It shows a dad going down the stairs of a house, (laughs) yelling at his daughter, who is clearly uh, a Greco-Roman muse. And she's being wooed by a automaton uh, that has a helpful label, canned music in theaters. Yep. It's like, look at this unwelcome suitor who's been wooing the muse for many dreary months without winning her favor. That's... uh, That's a weird one. That's loaded. Um, And like you said, it gets to the heart of it. I do agree it's disingenuous. They are kind of picking and choosing. Um, But it gets to the heart of it when we look at the the concept here is really deeper than music or jobs. It's being portrayed as the definition of a soul. And as they say in the office, oh, how the turntables, because... Today, as anyone can assure you, the music industry is battling to protect recorded music, right? 
That's right. I mean, it's a little bit of a different argument. It's more around, you know, intellectual property and like getting paid and making sure artists are treated fairly when it comes to people listening to their music, you know, on streaming services that pay them a fraction of a penny uh, and how it's becoming increasingly difficult to make a living on recorded music alone, which is extra problematic considering we're in the midst of a pandemic where live music has essentially been, you know, canceled uh, for the time being. I think a couple of interesting artists have have done it sort of well like uh the the flaming lips did a live concert where every member of the audience um was housed inside like a space bubble you know like one of those like giant plastic bubbles that you can like roll around in um but i would not say that's particularly sustainable moving forward more of a cool art project kind of situation but it's true. I mean, it's also something that you've seen suspicion around, like, you know, in the 80s, for example, when synthesizers became more popular. Well, not even the 80s, more like the 60s with Moog and um, Buchla, the the two kind of big names in, in electronic music and synthesis. There was this kind of misconception that electronic music wasn't really music because it somehow was not created by humans, which anyone that knows anything about electronic music knows that it's just a tool, it's just an instrument like a violin or a piano or anything else. It just makes different sounds and you can use it as such and it's a lot more flexible. Um, but the idea that electronic music isn't music because the machine is making it is sort of missing the point. Yeah, and you can see another argument to take it even further back in time. Uh, there, there were probably people who said, the creation of musical instruments or new musical instruments will somehow debase the importance of the human voice. Turns out they were wrong as well. But aside from the realm of music, there were plenty of other fears about the rise of machines or robots. Albert Einstein, during the Great Depression, blamed machines for joblessness. John Maynard Keynes, the famous economist, coined this phrase. He said, we're being afflicted with a new disease, technological unemployment. This phrase exploded. It was so popular. Uh, you, can, you can read more about this in an excellent article on Timeline.com. But there's one moment we have, which is technically uh, a story of a robot actually rising to attack its creator. It takes oh, place— man. Yeah, it takes place in 1932. A British inventor named Harry May is very excited to demonstrate his newest creation, a robot called Alpha. Come on over, he says to his friends. Check out my new robot. His name's Alpha. He can fire guns. Nice. What could go wrong? What could go wrong indeed? Um, and so, you know, the the robot is uh, asleep, I guess, or in shutdown mode in a chair and um, May places a weapon in its uh, robot arms uh, and then walks over across the room. It's bizarre they're doing this indoors, uh, but this is how the story goes. Uh, walks across the room to adjust a target that presumably is going to be the center of the demonstration. And as he does so, Ben, something shocking happens. That's right. As he's walking across the room, Alpha who weighs two tons, by the way, <laughs> slowly gets up to his on his robo feet and he points the gun. And the uh, the people observing this are screaming in terror at May. Watch out. It's turning on you. May turns around and he sees that his robot has apparently come to life and is now pointing the gun at him. Alpha moves forward. The inventor throws his hand in front of his face to defend himself. Maybe he invented a bulletproof hand earlier or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, the gun went off. And this means that Alpha technically became the first robot to rise against his inventor. The media went crazy about this. Yeah. The, I mean, this is like a real world example of, of everything that science fiction has predicted, uh, you know, obviously as satire, uh, but sometimes people that that's lost on people. Um, but yeah, this is the, our robot, you know, creations rising up to murder uh, the, the, us, the creator. This is all of us. This is not only is it threatening our jobs, like is Alpha going to now replace soldiers? Like what's what's going to what does this mean? And then. Okay, this is exactly what we needed to hear. The alarms are sounding. The robot rises up and shoots his master. Only that's not really how it happened at all. Yeah, it didn't happen that way. 
tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. (laughs) Well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? here on Ridiculous History. That's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. No matter what the, uh, the hyperbolic, juicy headlines were saying, it turns out that Harry May is real, first off, and he did have a robot. Alpha's also real. And he did want to show his friends the robot could fire a gun. But this was what we would call user error. You see, the gun accidentally went off as Harry was placing it in his robot's hand. He was not shot. He got a minor burn on his hand from the gunpowder. But people were willing to believe this, that this robot had somehow, despite not having the cognitive technology to even understand the concept of betrayal, they thought Alpha had risen up and attacked Harry May. And this panic, this resurrection of this panic at least, is happening in part due to the social crisis of the time. In the U.S., we have to remember This came about during the Great Depression. By 1933, almost one out of four people in the U.S. were unemployed. 13 million were out of work, and you needed something to blame. And there were tons of scapegoat candidates, right? Blame the president. No, it's the weather. No, let's blame the wealthy. And and one of the things people blamed uh, was robotics. That's right. And even outside of of the the play that we talked about at the top of the show, R-U-R, um, we had a fantastic illustration of this, maybe not a robot exactly, but of the idea of of playing God and then reanimating life, uh, you know, in our own image with Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's story that remains incredibly popular and, and, um, you know, reinterpreted uh, many, many, many times over today. And we mentioned the original um, recounting, you know, incorrectly of this uh, scenario with May that was run in a Louisiana paper and the piece was titled Our Dread of Robots. But this really caught fire and another paper in Sandusky, Ohio uh, published another letter to the editor in September 28th of 1932. The 
editor's name was Bruce Catton, and he used that Mary Shelley story in a very similar way to the editor in Louisiana in saying, quote, a psychologist could probably make a good deal of this fascinating dread of ours for mechanical monsters. A machinery has created a revolution in our life. The wage earner, the farmer, the soldier, the merchant, the politicians, the schoolmaster, the printer— all of us, in every moment of our lives, live differently than our ancestors lived because of the constant increase in the mechanization of society. This, to me, is a pretty even-handed uh, description, wouldn't you say, Ben? Yeah, yeah, that's true. And props to Bruce Catton for explaining this in an objective way. That trend continues. It never stopped. And this this is a good segue to represent the other side of the argument, the people who thought this was, on balance, a good thing. There were people who, you know, would be doing TED Talks at this time if they were around. People like Walter S. Gifford. He was also in an interview in Modern Mechanics. Gifford is a guy with skin in the game. At the time of his 1931 interview, he is president of the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, and he says that uh, the Depression will pass and will enter a period of prosperity the likes of which no country has seen before. He was definitely a fan of what was called the technocracy movement. We've heard the phrase technocrat before, sometimes as an insult, (laughs) sometimes as a compliment. Uh, This movement started in 1932 in New York, and the idea is that every world problem can be solved if we just replace politicians with engineers and with scientists. They describe this as a revolution without bloodshed, as something that would lead to a guaranteed income, an end to crime and disease. And they, they had a rhetorical question in one of their magazines. Uh, The cover features a robot, and the text under the robot says, 30 million out of work in 1933, or $20,000 guaranteed income for every family. Which? And so they're probably going too far in the positive direction here, right? Because they're saying it's a panacea, which which it isn't. And technocracy actually, this is weird, technocracy fell out of popularity because of technology. One of the movement's founders, a guy named Howard Scott, gave a just ridiculous speech on January 13th in 1933 and was broadcast on national radio. So they looked kind of like clowns. You can find copies of this online. But uh, it's kind of like uh, several years back when former presidential candidate Howard Dean had an unfortunate uh, squawk. Was that the one? It's a yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really high pitched. And then, you know, from that point on, his policies didn't matter as much as the fact that there was this terrible soundbite. All to say, we're still fighting technology today. The Matrix did not come cut out of whole cloth. Predictions for the future really are a direct reflection of the times in which they're created. And what I like about that is it it reminds me of, um, have you ever heard that old observation that a disguise is really an autobiography of the person who chooses to wear it? No, but I like that very much. So maybe maybe what we're doing with our fears of the future is uh, we're exploring our fears of the modern day. You know, we've seen U.S. residents of every political stripe imaginable uh, be concerned about the future and more often than not be concerned about continual employment. It's really tough out there, you know. Uh, there's a writer for Slate called Farhad Manjo who warned that In the future, even very highly educated folks like doctors and scientists and lawyers might find their jobs outsourced to robots or to AI. I don't know what you, I I don't know. What do you think, Noel? Because to me, it seems like it should be interesting to everyone to know that the panic about automation and robotics is very old. But I, I don't think it'll put everybody out out of a job. It just seems naive to say it won't put 
anyone out because that's well, clearly going to happen. Heck, man. I mean, you know, you and I have even seen stuff. We've been sh- like shown betas of software that can take a voice print of, of say, a podcast and do a pretty convincing job of like doing ads, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, you know, that ads is how we, we make our money on this show. And even that idea or the idea of like, what if we don't need voice actors anymore to like do audiobooks? Or what if like, you know, we've got the technology's gotten good enough that we don't even need actors anymore because the CGI is so good and it's cheaper just to like, you know, have computer animators do it all. I think that fear is always present when you have a new technology that comes out, but it takes such a long time for it to get to the point where it's going to be a replacement for the human touch. And I think it's be, it'd be naive for us to say that's never going to happen for our career. What about editors that edit video? You know, surely if a good enough algorithm could edit a video convincingly, right? Um, we haven't seen it quite yet, but we know that that is certainly something that some people are in a lab right now trying their damnedest to figure out. Yeah, and I think we'll see a rise of uh, neo-Luddites along the way at some point as people fear and fight against change. But I also think there's there's an important thing that often gets lost when we talk about utopian post-work futures. Somewhere along the line to a post-work future where no one truly has to do anything unless they feel called to do it, there would inevitably be a period of a post-worker future, wherein people still have to provide for themselves, but the opportunities to do so are increasingly limited. These are real fears. There's, there's a reason that this line of thinking keeps happening. With that being said, uh, I'm, I'm very much forward to the future kind of person. In, in other shows, uh, we've explored the possibilities here. Like the, um, I, I wonder if the... If the American Federation of Musicians could travel here to 2020 as we record this, I I wonder what they would think of the idea that we're close to a world of artificially generated scripts. We're close to a world, maybe in our lifetimes, where you could have an app on your phone. I want to design this, but I'm not smart enough. You could have an app on your phone where you say, okay, take like uh, Metropolis and... Gremlins. Gremlins, sure. The <laughs> Gremlins, Big Trouble in Little China, and the jazz singer, and put it all together in a coherent story, right. and then cast me and my friends based on the photographs you have of us from social media as the principal actors, and then just let me see it happen. That could happen. And that's not to say that there isn't even an art in interacting with, uh, let's call it generative technology, right? So like that would be a script that was generated electronically by artificial intelligence. But there is a lot uh, of um, interest in uh, experimental music and generative music where you kind of set some parameters and then sort of see what happens. You know, it's like a... Uh, an artificially intelligence-driven experiment where you're sort of choosing the parameters. And then, like, Brian Eno does this a lot, the incredible producer and ambient musician, where he'll kind of make these generative things that will just continue to evolve. And that's something that's used in video game music, for example, where you can set these parameters around an ambient tone and it will drift or change based on certain things that you then set up, like the way programming language works. So that's creative in and of itself. Like I would, I would argue that's not cheating. That's just being clever and using the tools in an interesting way. Yeah. Does using a typewriter mean you're not writing? That's that's a similar question. Uh, and, and these are questions that we're going to continue exploring uh, in the future as, as a species. But how fascinating is it that over 200 years ago, many of our fears remain almost exactly what they are today? Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode, robots and humans alike. Uh, we can't wait to hear from you. What do you think uh, the future of this trend will bring? We would love to hear your thoughts. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. We'd like to recommend our Facebook page, Ridiculous Historians. Uh, you can also find us as individuals on the old social meds. Sure can. You can find me pretty much exclusively on Instagram, where I am at How Now Noel Brown. And you can join up with me on Twitter, where I'm at Ben Bullen HSW, or uh, witness my various strange experiments 
discoveries and tinkerings on my Instagram, at Ben Bolin. Thanks, as always, to Christopher Hasiotis. Uh, thanks to our number one technological threat, or the guy who wants to be our number one technological threat, Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister, all too human. Huge thanks to our uh, very human super producer, Casey Pegram. I uh, wish he'd been able to get in on this conversation. I thought the, the film stuff would have been particularly of interest to him, but uh, we can, uh, we'll catch up on that next time. Um, we hope his adventures are faring well. Huge thanks to Alex Williams, who very humanly composed this theme. Uh, he used electronic technology, but it all came from his heart and brain. And his lovely, lovely hands. <laughs> That's exactly. all we got today. Thanks to Gabe Luzier, our uh, also very human research associate. Um, couldn't do it without you, Gabe. Eve's Jeff Coates, um, who the, the cat is out of the bag. J.Ill, the Jill Scott podcast. Mm-hmm. Eve's has uh, been instrumental in working with that team. I had a little hand in it, bar- barely just getting things off the ground. And she's just taking the ball and run with it. And is, uh, I'm really, really, really happy with that show. It is out in the world now. I think there are uh, two episodes fully live. Check out J.Ill, the podcast. Awesome. Yes. And uh, I'd love to have Eve's back on the show again today. So uh, when you write to her, uh, tell her the guys say hi. We can assure you that uh, this show is at this point 100 percent not robotic. But if you are a robot, and you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the show. uh, Let us know. Just uh, send send us a text and binary. See you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org.